And uh, one of the things that I related to him immediately was that he talked dirty. And uh, a couple of my heroes before I got here, well, one of them was Lenny Bruce, who had written the book How to Talk Dirty and Influence People, and uh, Earl Flynn's book My Wicked, Wicked Ways. It did a lot for me, too, of course. Uh, both of those people are now dead of this disease, uh, incidentally. Uh, but also, as I listened to the tape over a period of time, I could uh, I started to, to hear something about a God that uh, I could do business with. Um, and Bob even talked dirty to God. So uh, that was a little strange for me, and uh, because all this God business really got me uh, queasy when I first came in. Uh, and over the years... Uh, there's also been, first of all, I weighed 70 pounds more than I do now when I got here. And uh, uh, Bob talked a lot about doing things that you don't want to do and going through resistance and, uh, you know, to, 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 to feel better about yourself and to build your self-esteem. And I, I think he has influenced me a lot. He's influenced me as much as any single speaker in AA. And I listen to a lot of tapes and I go to a lot of meetings and... Uh, uh, for me, it's a pleasure. I met Bob for the first time today, and I'd like to now welcome, on behalf of all of us, Bob. Sort of an auspicious introduction, but uh, working? Is it working in the back? You can hear? It's a typical AA meeting answer. Half say yes, half say no. Now you can? Yes, no? Yeah. <laughs> I'm Bob. I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. It's an interesting convention. Unique gathering. When he's saying about doing things that you don't want to do, I think either probably the biggest thing in recovery is eventually you're going to have to take all your belief systems and set them aside. Anything you brought in is going to have to be at least put aside for a while. It doesn't mean forever, just put aside for a while. And I was thinking about the educations in this room and the training and the work and the machining that's gone on that, that you're probably all so well honed that you could kill yourselves with little or no effort at all, you know. <laughs> uh, Training is everything. <laughs> Why participate when you can train? <laughs> well, I know I don't need to talk about how to get loaded, because I used to shoot Demerol in the parking lot behind the clinic with my own personal physician, so I know that you do it the same as everybody else, so that clears up that one. <laughs> in fact, he was even a little sloppier than I was. <clears throat> I like to talk about recovery. Because recovery to me has been the problem. Drinking and using was only the the fuel that that got me here. You know, it was like it was like actually what it did for me is is when I rolled into adolescence, I was so screwed up that the the new set of emotions that come with adolescence were more than I could cope with. And drugs and alcohol gave me a way to keep them down too, so that I could stuff them. Somebody said, "What is what is the disease of alcoholism?" I'd say it's stuffed feelings. That's it. Stuffed feelings. So let's talk about recovery. 24 years ago, on the 28th of this month, I rolled through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. As a drug addict and alcoholic, I was living outdoors. I weighed 135 pounds, which is about, I don't know, what, 40 pounds less than I weigh now. And uh, 
I was not, I was, uh, had small problems up here. <laughs> the wiring, it all shorted out. Now, if you're new or if you're working with people who are new who have really fried the elect electrical circuits in their brain from various chemical combinations, I think they're blessed. I don't, I think we're the easiest ones to work with. We have the least resistance because we don't know where we are, why we're there, what we're doing there, and we don't care, you know. People say, sit here, you go, okay, yeah, fine. Put your hand up, yeah, all right, you know. Want coffee? Sure, yeah. Never had any in my life, but I'll drink some, you know. Had to come to AA to learn how to kill yourself nutritionally. We'll get to that later. So, uh, one of the things that happened to me in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous is my mind made an observation. Now, this is probably the single most dangerous thing that can happen to me on any given day in my life, is any observation that my mind makes, because it makes it on all this faulty information that it, and I don't know where the hell it collects it, you know, but it just, like, collects it out of the air, like airwaves, you know, it just picks up stuff, you know, and it, it's all valid, whatever it hears is valid, doesn't matter how insane it is, it just says, yeah, that's good, we'll, we'll keep that for later, you know. So my mind looked around this AA meeting at these people. It was a nice little meeting. It was a charming little meeting in Altadena, California, in the hills above Pasadena, in a uh, American Legion Hall. And a nice little group of people, you know, just a nice, friendly, sociable, average little AA group of people. My mind looked around the room and said, oh, Jesus, we have sunk to the bottom this time, man. This is the end of the road here. <clears throat> I looked around the room, and I'd had, at that point, 26 years of agreeing with my mind. Nothing changed. I looked around the room and said, oh, yeah, you're right. Jeez, this is it. This is the end of the road. <clears throat> now, really interesting thing happens if you do that. Instead of, instead of viewing this as a beginning, instead of viewing this as a starting place, instead of viewing this as something wonderful and magical and mystical and spiritual and something that's going to move me through life like I never dreamed possible, I'm saying, uh-oh, <laughs> this is it. This is the end of the road. And I adopted that philosophy in early sobriety. And the interesting thing about that is, how much energy do you put in to the end of the road? It's almost like I, my conception was this. If you're not lucky enough to be able to continue using narcotics and drinking alcohol, and you're not lucky enough to be dead, you stay in AA till you die. That's, that's it. <clears throat> you just hang out here. First 90 days of recovery were blissful. I had no idea who I was or who you were, and I didn't care. Didn't matter. You, everybody says, I love the line we give newcomers, if you want what we have, like they are capable of perceiving what the hell it is we have, you know. I had no idea what you're talking about. Somebody would stand up and say, if you want what we have, I'd follow them out to see what kind of car they drove. You know. <laughs> see if it had at least <laughs> somehow could be relative to, you know, what they're saying. After about 90 days, I began to think. Now, this is where the trouble set in in recovery. Because I began to judge things. See, my mind loves to judge things. My mind has to have everything in a compartment. And it must stay there. Because control is critical to my life. I must have control of me, control of you, <laughs> control of the environment whenever possible. Control of all people in my space. That's, if I can have that, I'm at peace. <laughs> so I think. <laughs> So my mind says, but control is essential, absolutely essential. So once the mind begins to work, or my mind begins to work, it's got to start labeling things. And it labels everything. All people with gray hair are alike. All people black are alike. All Mexicans are alike. All Spanish, you know, all, all, all tall people are alike. All short people are alike. All doctors are alike. All nurses are alike. You know, it's got, everything's got to be in a neat box. And you cannot get out of that box. Because if you get out of that box, I go right over the edge. See, because now I don't know what to do with you. And I don't know how to deal with it. It's like, I don't like people expressing feelings. 
Because usually your feelings are inappropriate to the situation. So I, A, feel responsible, and then B, think i got to fix it. And C, I don't know how. So now I hate you. And as in bad relationships, death becomes the only possible solution. <laughs> Yours, not mine. <laughs> well, that's the mind. See, the mind works this way. You know, I've been un- uncomfortable for years in an uncomfortable relationship that was, I mean, was dead. And, you know, the only thing that hadn't been done was the funeral march hadn't been played. But we're still together. And it was like, I always figured, I stayed until my prayer was they would die. So I wouldn't have to confront them. So I wouldn't have to talk about what I felt. So I wouldn't have to risk somebody coming out of their box and saying something that I didn't know how to deal with. You know, that, that's just recovery. What the hell? We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> One of the things that early sobriety I noticed is that at least I did this, and most of the friends that I've talked to have done this, is that <clears throat> after a while, I discovered one thing about people who go to AA. They're always fine. Ask anybody in a meeting how they are. How are you, George? I'm fine, thanks. How are you, Bob? I'm fine, thanks. It's nice, you know. And then George walks away, and somebody comes up and says to you, God, did you hear about poor George? No. What happened to George? Oh, God, his wife divorced him. They repossessed his car, and he lost his job. So if you're new, you hear this, you go, okay, I understand. No matter what happens, you're fine. So I'm fine. So as, as the first couple of years went by in sobriety, the first year was kind of, the easiest in, in most aspects the first year was easier because it like kind of went by without my really knowing it had gone by you know they kept me busy my sponsors kept me busy they realized that the worst thing I could do is have a lot of time alone and that if I had that I'd probably go away so they kept me doing things mopping floors moving chairs making coffee you know just busy 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 and then I got a year of sobriety and it gave me a lot of panels and institutions and prisons and hospitals busy work you know keeping from thinking give them people to work with. <laughs> but one thing I noticed is that about two and a half years, three years, I started to get real uncomfortable. This uneasiness began to build up inside of me. I had no idea what it was. I was just uneasy. And I was uneasy all the time. It didn't matter. You know, people would be at me. And I was getting really sick of watching people one in two years take their birthday cakes and they're so goddamn happy. You know, I'm sitting in a meeting. I'm three years sober. I want to blow my brains out in the parking lot. You know, I've never been happier in my life. I just can't tell you how grateful I am for AA. I'm thinking, you know, recovery is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. (laughs) If not the worst, it's certainly the most painful thing that's ever happened to me. I never considered suicide when I was drinking and using. Not once. In 11 years of raging drug addiction and alcoholism did I ever contemplate taking my life. I had to get sober to begin to think about killing myself. Then, after about three years of sobriety, it became almost upon awakening. It became the immediate solution to the day. Well, if it gets too bad, <laughs> I'll kill myself. <clears throat> but I'd go to meetings and people would say, Hi, how, how are you, Bob? I'm fine, thanks. <clears throat> how are you? And I realized that one of the things that had happened to me over the first couple of three years in AA is I had formulated what I kind of like to call my AA personality. And it didn't have anything to do with reality. It was just who I was in AA. <laughs> It's kind of like if you, it's, it's almost as like Superman puts his cape on in the phone booth. It's almost like I, I put this guy on in the parking lot outside the meeting, you know, and I would walk him into the meeting. And the one thing he had to be, it was critical, it was that he would be a good AA. So I took it from this guy's talk and my sponsor's talk and this person's talk and this person, and I formulated a personality. Now, if you worked with me on the job and you met me in AA, you would have no idea it was the same person. 
Not at all. Or if you knew me in AA and you saw me chasing somebody through the hallways at work with a wrench to kill him, you'd also not know it was the same guy who was at meetings talking about God, love, easy does it, and how wonderful it is to be walking a spiritual path. <clears throat> so when I walked in a meeting three years sober and somebody came up to me and said, Hey, Bob, hi, how are you? The most honest thing I could have done would have been drop to my knees, grab them around the ankles, and began to sob uncontrollably on their shoes. <laughs> but I couldn't do that. Because if I did that, if I did that, then the secret would be out. And this is the most closely guarded secret of my entire life. And that secret's very simply this. That something is wrong with me. And in any situation, anywhere, whether it's a skid row meeting of AA or a top level executive meeting at a motion picture studio, I'm not enough. I'm not enough. And I know I'm not enough. So if I fall to my knees and I grab you around the ankles and I sob on your shoes and I tell you that I'm in the worst emotional pain of my life and I've worked every step I know how to work, then you're going to know something's wrong with me. Drastically wrong with me. So I went on like that for a couple of years. Rolling into year five, two months before my fifth birthday in AA, I reached the end of my rope. I guess I should tell a little story about God. I had a lot of trouble with God. <laughs> John said, I talked dirty to God. Only because I was afraid of God, because my mind had me convinced that I should not pray. Because in the book, everybody kept saying, God as you understand him, God as you understand him, God as you understand him. And I could only picture the old man in the sky with the book, keeping score, and I knew we weren't even close to being even. Okay? I was even with the state of California, so I knew God wasn't even an issue, you know. <laughs> And I try and pray, and I wanted to pray, and I watch people go to meetings, and they'd get up and say, oh, gee, my whole life fell apart this morning, and I went in the bathroom, got on my knees, you know, by the toilet, and I just said, God, please, God, dear, help me, and I walked out of the bathroom, and my God, you know, it showered from the heavens, and everything's great, and I'd be sitting there, my neck would be over like this from pain, you know, and stress, I couldn't move, my back's all tied up in knots, and I'd think, i got to pray, you know, I really got to pray, and I'd run home, and I'd, you know, pull all the drapes and overlap them so nobody could see me, because my sponsor said I had to pray on my knees. And I get down by my bed on my knees, and I fold my hands, bow my head, and the voice would say, "Forget it. God only works for the good guys, and you are not one of the good guys." So what I the, the concept that I gathered then was that that I had to kind of undo some of the past before I could pray. You know, I had to just get good. If I could get good, then God would hear my prayers. Now, why I did this, I have no idea, but I sort of equated getting good enough for God to hear my prayers with being a good credit risk. <laughs> well, you know, you're looking at an armed robber. Credit was never an issue, you know. It was, uh, <clears throat> Thank you very much. That's exactly the amount I need. <laughs> so I always just kind of figured that if Sears and Roebuck would eventually accept me, then I could talk to God. You know, it was, I don't know where I worked that one out, but I worked that one out. And unfortunately, when I was four years sober, I went bankrupt. I'll tell you, I'll get to that one. <clears throat> Two years sober, I'm sitting in an AA meeting. Friends of mine who were in this meeting swear to God the speaker didn't tell the story. I don't care. I heard it. <laughs> Changed my life. Screw them. They didn't hear it. <laughs> This guy told a story, a real simple story about two men drinking in a bar in Alaska. <clears throat> One was an atheist and the other was a very religious man. 
Eventually, their conversa- conversation swung around to God. The atheist looked at the religious man. He says, I don't believe in your God. The religious man says, why not? The atheist said, I gave your God a chance to prove himself to me once, and he didn't do it. The religious man says, in what manner did you give God a chance to prove himself? The atheist says, well, about six months ago, I was lost about 150 miles north of town in a blizzard. And I knelt down in the snow, and I looked at the sky, and I said, God, if there is one, I'm lost, and I'm going to die. Religious man looks at him, smiles a very knowing smile. He says, why, you must believe you're here. Atheist said, nah, some goddamn Eskimo came along, showed me the way back to town. (laughs) Well, one of my sponsors had been on my case from day one that the kingdom of heaven was inside. Stop looking outside. The kingdom of heaven is within. And I couldn't accept that concept because I knew what was inside of me was was something wrong with it. And that it wasn't enough. And that it was bad, whatever was inside of me. And if that be the case, and God be good, the two are not synonymous and cannot occupy the same space, which meaning I was left without God. But I heard this story, and I remember how I got to AA, okay? I'm living outdoors, sitting in the doorway in Pasadena. <clears throat> this guy, and I couldn't call. I had the phone number, and a little ad I'd taken out of the paper. Call Hubbard, whatever the hell the number was, if you have a drinking problem. And I had a dime, and I kept the dime and the ad hidden for myself, so I wouldn't spend the dime on alcohol. And I'd go to the phone booth day after day after day, and I'd drop the dime in. I'd listen to the dial tone, hang up, and walk away, because I'm not the kind of person who can admit to any human being anywhere, under any circumstances, that I need your help. I will die first. Preferably. Wonderful philosophy. God, that's healthy. Can't believe how emotionally healthy that is. No, it's okay. Go ahead. Kill me. I don't need you. <coughs> One day I hear this. The shadow looms over me in my doorway. I hear this voice saying, hey, if you don't have any place to stay, you can come stay with us. And I look up. Here's a guy I've known for years and years and years, and through a part of my stealing time and my in my uh, uh, drinking and using, I went through a little bit of a Robin Hood complex, and I gave a lot of money away. And this guy and his and his wife and his six kids had been on welfare ever since I'd known them. So I looked up at him and he said, "Hey, you can come stay with me." And I thought, "Hey, I'll go, see, because he owes it to me. This is not charity. This is the code of the streets." He, it's his duty to take me out of that goddamn doorway and take me home. I mean, he, it's his responsibility to take me home. So he takes me out of this doorway, he takes me home, him and his wife and six kids live in a one-bedroom apartment about a block from my doorway. Thousands of cockroaches, some I brought with me, some were already there. <laughs> Mine didn't squish when you step on them, his did. <laughs> That's how I could tell whether they were real or not, you know. When you reach the end, it really doesn't matter anymore. There's a there's a point where hallucinations bother you, and then you just go right on beyond that one. You don't really care. It's like, oh, I wonder if that's real. Well, who cares? You know, <clears throat> put a finger out, see if it'll bite. So I'm sitting on this guy's couch in this apartment. I'm sick and skinny and sh- shaking and falling apart. I said, you know, one of these days I got to do something, man, about my problem. I got to go to that AA thing. He said, why? There's a girl down the hall goes to AA. Wow, this is 1962. I didn't know women went to AA. I had no idea what a girl looked like. Well, I had an idea what a girl looked like. One day, I thought she looked like Gravel Gertie. You know, I mean, that was the 
only concept I could get of some of a woman that went to AA. The only people I'd seen go to AA were derelicts who were crippled, or guys in the institution who, if they didn't go, they'd never see the free world again as long as they lived. That was my idea who went to AA. So I wanted to see what a girl looked like that went to Alcoholics Anonymous. So I walked down the hall, knocked on the door. <clears throat> now God, in his infinite wisdom, will always provide the perfect Eskimo. Quite often you'll not approve of his choice. <laughs> you probably will have someone else in mind. <laughs> he knew, however, that if the girl had opened this door was an absolute fox, I would lie. I would not be able to help myself from lying. It would be as automatic as that. She'd open the door, I'd stand and look at a gorgeous woman, I'd say, oh, geez, I understand you belong to an organization that uh, has something to do with alcoholism. My father's a victim of that disease. Perhaps you could dispense some information which would insist me in aiding this poor suffering man, you know, standing there in the clothes they've been living in for three months. <clears throat> the girl that opened this door is big enough to break every bone in my body. She had. She stood about 6'2", 6'3", weighed about 235 pounds. She was built like a professional football fullback. She had short black hair, tattoos all the way down both arms and both legs. And she had a half full pint of alcohol in her hand. This is my introduction to AA. <clears throat> and then we walk around the hallowed halls of the fellowship and say, be careful what you say to the newcomer. <laughs> Give me a goddamn break, will you? Where do you think the newcomer's coming from, for Christ's sakes? All right? So I look at this monster standing before me with his bottle, and I'm in heaven, see, because this is street people. I'm home. I can talk to her. I said, hey, look, I'm curious about this A thing. She looked me right in the eyes. She said, A will work if you want it, and I'm not ready to quit drinking. <laughs> Made perfect sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought if I was as big and strong as she was, I wouldn't quit either, you know. I'd turn around and walk right back out of here, man, you know. I didn't come here because it was desirable. I came here because I couldn't go on anymore, you know. She felt responsibility for sobriety she had she, before she drank, put me in a car and took me to a meeting. 28th of August, 1962. <clears throat> okay, now we come forward. I've heard the story. I go home. And I'm, and I'm, I'm like, I'm just like so excited I can't stand it. It's like, yeah! There is a God. I finally understand him. He's in me. He's in you. And the only instrument God has to work through is people. People. So I'm going to be okay. It's all right. I mean, I'm like really stoked up. You know, and I get home in my apartment. I sit down in the chair. Shrink once said that the armchair is the neurotic spaceship. I think that's a great term. You know, I should, I should always get up and get moving. You know, and we all have that chair. I'm sure you have one in your office where you sit and think between patients. <laughs> Probably the high point of your day <laughs> and the low point of your life. <clears throat> I sit down in this chair just filled with joy because there is a God my mind says to me, don't get so goddamn excited, will you? There's a few areas of your life that God isn't interested in. I said, oh, really? What are they? Well, first, God doesn't care where you work. I thought about it for a while. It was logical. I mean, it was really logical. If you consider all the problems on this planet and all the things going on, just where I punched the clock did not seem terribly important. So I said, okay, that's all right. That doesn't bother me. I can handle that. What else? Mm. God also doesn't care about money. God and money are not synonymous. Well, I had watched enough late-night Christian television to accept that as a truth. <laughs> <clears throat> 
I knew that if you had any left, you're supposed to send it in, you know, so. <laughs> I knew that God and money were not synonymous. And finally, my mind said, I said, what else? By the way, I don't, the only question I ask my mind today, or I've probably asked it in the last 10 years, is when it begins to speak to me, is what is your source of information? It usually doesn't have one. Or it's an out-of-date book. So I said, what else? My, my mind says to me, God isn't interested in relationships. Doesn't care who you date, who you're married to. It's not important to him. Thought about that for a minute. I said, okay, that makes sense. So now what my mind had done to me is really interesting. <clears throat> now, if you, you know, I believe this. You, know, you can sit out there and feel that you and your mind are united into some wonderful, masterful machine that's going to go through life. Mine doesn't work that way. <laughs> my mind is the first thing to try and stop me from doing anything good for me. And the first thing to try and talk me into doing something that's absolutely going to destroy my whole life. Oh, that looks like a wonderful idea. Why don't we go over here? It can't cost us more than $100,000 in three years in prison. <laughs> but, but think of the excitement. <laughs> it's like it wants bigger electrical impulses. I don't know what the hell it's looking for. But anyway, I know it's convinced that it can kill me and go on without me. <laughs> <laughs> so now, I, when you're when you're new in this program, if you have sponsors like I have, they always give you the kind of people that you identify with. So I got all the guys who were really over the goddamn edge, you know, blown up buildings with people in them, you know, had escaped from 17 prisons, stormed last, led the last break, storming the wall at Leavenworth, you know, all those kind of fun people to sponsor. And now these guys are like I am. I've never called anybody in the middle of the night in my life in recovery. Because if I call you in the middle of the night, you're going to know something's wrong. And you're going to know that I'm not enough. So I'm not going to call. I'll die before I call. These guys would also die before they call. But on a few occasions, they have called. And when they've called, the emotional pain has been so great and so severe that they probably crawled across the rug to get to the phone, pulled it off the table by the cord, and dialed the number. And the source of their pain on these occasions was always one of three things. Money, employment, or women. The very three areas of my life that my mind had convinced me I was to take charge of. God would take care of everything else. <clears throat> I'm thoroughly convinced now that at some point in our recovery, every one of us is going to come to a day where a decision must be made. And the decision is very simply this. Either there is a God or there isn't one. Either he is all-powerful, all-loving, and all-present, or he doesn't exist. And he, if he is all-powerful, all-loving, and all-present, what are we worried about? What is the concern? What is the panic of this moment? A lot of my panic is created by, of course, anxiety is my drug of choice in recovery anyway. But... <clears throat> But it, a lot of my panic is created by a need to understand things that I have no business bothering to try and understand in the first place. Anyway, so anyhow, I, I go from year two after hearing this story about the Eskimos to year four, and I turn everything over to God except money, women, and employment. Approaching my fourth birthday in AA, I am financially bankrupt in the courts. I do not own an automobile. It went into bankruptcy. I'm living with a guy I don't even particularly like sleeping on his sofa. I'm working in a car wash for a dollar and a quarter an hour. I haven't been with a woman in so long. I am so horny, I can't even get anybody to go to coffee with me after a meeting. <laughs> it's after a while you get a look, you know, and they don't believe anything you say. I mean, you know, they, just, they sense the energy as you come across the room, you know. 
Hi, you want to go talk about God? <laughs> Can we have coffee and say the third step prayer together? Yeah. They're backing up, you know, as you're talking. So, <clears throat> and I had started at a dollar thirty-five in the car wash instead of a buck and a quarter, but I got a rash from the detergents and the washing. That had to be moved to the drive-off end. Well, now, I don't know any of you have spent a lot of time in institutions, but if you spend a lot of time in institutions, you sit on a lot of concrete. If you sit on a lot of concrete, you develop hemorrhoids. Also, I discovered that four years sober, if you bounce in and out off hot car seats all day long, the hemorrhoids come back. <clears throat> so I'm a week away from my fourth birthday living in this guy's apartment that I don't like, working in a car wash for a buck and a quarter an hour with a rash on my arms, my hemorrhoids coming back. <laughs> Financially bankrupt, I don't own a car, and I'm so horny my eyes are crossed. Somebody said to me, are you going to take a cake? I said, I don't think so. <laughs> I said, what the hell am I going to tell the newcomer? Come in here for four years, you can have this? You know? So an Eskimo drove to the car wash, offered me another job, better, I could walk to it, paid 50 cents an hour more, and off I went. I took this job, and I worked on it for a year. Two months prior to my fifth birthday in AA, I sat in my little single apartment in North Hollywood in the valley, and I was sitting on the bed, and I wanted to die. Now, I was into the kind of depression that suicide, I've been told later, later on by professionals, would have been a step up in the depression. <laughs> <clears throat> that I was just wanted to sit in that one spot where I was and stop breathing. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted it over. Now, this is a guy, almost five years sober, panels in five institutions, secretary of two meetings, sponsoring 30 babies, have written six inventories, went back and made amends to people that told me they were sorry I was alive, much less found recovery, okay? <clears throat> <laughs> they didn't guarantee me that people would enjoy it. They didn't. You want to be shot some son of a bitch, you know, and he's dragging one leg. He ain't thrilled that you found a way out. <laughs> so here I am, rolling into year five, and all I want to do is die. All I want to do is die. So an absolute, complete, total desperation. I looked at the ceiling in this little apartment and I screamed at the top of my lungs. I said, if you're not there, I'm fucked. <laughs> I know some of you love the prayer, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I love all the furor over language and AA. It's hysterical. I mean, it breaks me up, right? I don't care what anybody says if they talk from the heart. The only thing that cares about language is the mind. And it will use anything it can to stop you from getting information. <laughs> I, of course, waited. Don't kid yourself. <laughs> you know, I kind of like, uh-oh. I did it now. <clears throat> because I was also convinced that in order to get God to answer my prayers, I had to petition him in the proper metaphysical terminology. If I hooked together the right words, he'd listen. If I hooked together the wrong words, I was screwed. Well, I finished that. I figured that prayer finished me, you know. Went to work the next day in an extremely freak accident that cannot happen. I placed a brand new Allen head wrench that had just been machined into a brand new Allen head bolt that had just been machined for the wrench. 
and it cannot slip. It did. I fell backwards against one of the furnaces, crushed two vertebrae in my back, and I was taken to the emergency hospital. I'm laying in the emergency hospital in this little cubicle, and all the doctors are saying to me, well, that's it, sucker. You can't work as a diecaster anymore. Can't stand for long periods of time. Can't lift anything heavy because my back is a mess. You know, I had a bad attitude, and I was insane when I was on the street. So people came at me from behind. So I have fused vertebrae, fractured vertebrae, a pelvis that's been snapped in half, put back together. Just a lot of things that aren't quite where they were when I started out. <laughs> so all these doctors walk out of this cubicle and my mind says to me, See? See? You dumb son of a bitch. I told you. Last night you surrendered and today you broke your back. Well, suddenly, from down here, down in the very bottom of my stomach, came a little voice I had never heard before. And this little voice screamed at my mind. It said, why don't you shut up? Now I find myself in the position of a moderator, right? <laughs> I got voices coming from here, voices coming from here, you know. So. What do we listen to now, for Christ's sake? You know, who's next? So I decided to go with a little voice in the stomach. You know? I was tired of my mind, too. It was driving me right over the edge. You know, you know that's when people commit suicide. They pick up a gun. They don't shoot themselves in the foot, you know. <laughs> they go for the voices, of which there are many. You are not alone. So when you're walking around your house alone and it seems like you have a, you're in day school, you know, preschool, with all these unruly children running around screaming at you, you're not alone. And when you get in your car alone in the morning to drive somewhere, it seems like it's full of people that don't want to go where you want to go. <clears throat> you're not alone. It's part of the disease. We just don't talk about it. You can't look good and admit to 13 voices in your head at the same time. I'm sure it's terrifies some of your patients, too. If you say, excuse me, I've got to see who's making the diagnosis here. Because <laughs> a couple of these halfwits have not been to medical school. <laughs> so I decided to listen to a little voice in my stomach, and I decided, geez, maybe breaking my back is a good deal. How the hell do I know? You know, I mean, part of my whole life has gone in the toilet by trying to to decide whether things are good or bad. That's good, that's bad. That's good. There's no gray. There's no gray. Tragedy. All Most of life is gray. That's good, that's bad. That's good, that's bad. That's how my mind works. There's a wonderful story about that. There's this little village high in the hills in some little tiny European country, and there was this farmer who had this great, magnificent white horse. Incredible white horse. One day the king came by and he said, I'd like to buy your white horse. And the farmer said, Jesus, I can't sell them to you. It's like part of the family, they're friends. And the king went away. And that night the white horse ran away. And all the villagers ran out to this little guy's place and they said, oh, How terrible. You should have sold him the horse. He would have made you a rich man. Now you have no money. You have no horse. What an awful, awful thing. The little man said, I don't know that it is an awful thing. I know I did not sell my horse. And I know he has run away. About three days later, the horse comes back and he brings six other horses with him. Now all the villagers rush back out to the guy's farm and say, Oh, wow, you were right. It wasn't a bad thing. It was a wonderful thing that your horse ran away. Now you have six horses that you can sell instead of one. It is truly a wonderful thing. 
The little man said, I don't know that it is a wonderful thing, but I do know my horse has returned and he's brought six more with him. Well, in the process of saddle breaking these horses, riding these horses and breaking them for saddle, the farmer's only son was thrown and broke both of his legs. Now again, the villagers run out to his farm and they say to him, oh, you were right. It wasn't a good thing that the white horse brought back the other horses. It was a terrible thing because now your son has both legs broken and he was the only one you had to help you. And the little man said, I don't know that it is a terrible thing. How do I know that my son has his legs broken? And a few weeks later, this little tiny country went to war with a much greater country. And they came through the countryside, the soldiers, collecting all the young men who could fight and taking them to the front. And it was guaranteed death, sure death to go to the front. But they couldn't take the little farmer's son because his legs were broken. And once again, the villagers rush out to the farm and they say, You were right. It wasn't a bad thing that your son broke his legs. It was a good thing. Because now he doesn't have to go to war. And the little man says, I don't know that it was a good thing. I just know that he doesn't have to go. And the story goes on and on and on and on. I live like that. That's good, that's bad. That's good, that's bad. Right? <laughs> and I'm probably wrong 90% of the time. As I reflect back now on 24 years of recovery, the, the things that I have deemed to be the worst possible things that could happen to me at the time they happened to me have benefited me the most. And that's without exception. Without exception. Okay, so I decide maybe my mind is right. Maybe breaking my back isn't a bad deal. Maybe it's not a bad deal. Maybe it's a good thing. What the hell do I know? So I decided to do what's put in front of me. So I go to vocational rehabilitation. I go get my braces and all the crap that I have to wear. And I go to uh, apply for disability insurance. A lot of trouble with voc rehab. They kept giving me aptitude tests. I kept coming out different. <laughs> <laughs> And you know what's interesting about that with us is they think it's intentional. See, they don't understand. One day I like the outdoors, one day I don't like the outdoors. You know, it's... it's <laughs> Six months into voc rehab, they can't place me. They cannot find anything for me to do. They can't find anywhere to send me. They want to send me to, they want to get me a high school equivalency test, send me to four years at UCLA, get me a BA in psychology, and have me begin to work in social work. <laughs> I asked my counselor if she'd read my police record. I said, a board of criminal psychiatry in the state of California says I'm a homicidal social psychopath. I've never seen that as a prerequisite for social work. <laughs> and in case you missed the point, I don't like people. <laughs> Six months later, they haven't done anything with me. They don't know what the hell to do. And I'm sitting there one night, and I'm reading TV Guide, and there's an ad, and TV Guide says, would you like to be a writer? And the little guy in the stomach says, let's try that. The mind goes right off the edge. It's always there to support me in any new endeavor. You can't do that, you jerk. Blah, blah, blah. So I take the ad into my counselor at Voc Rehab, give it to her. She laughs so hard, she almost fell out of her wheelchair. Because she knew everything there was to know about me. She knew that I had failed English ever since the fourth grade. She knew that they threw me out of high school in the tenth grade, and she knew I was a phonetic speller. D D is dead to me. I I can't find any use for the A at all. And it, it was, But God had outwitted the bureaucracy of the state of California, and this guy was so anxious to get me off his rolls because I'd been on there forever, he would have signed for basket weaving for me. So he said, get him the books. It's okay. So 
So they got me a book. So I wrote a, the books. I wrote a story. I submitted it to a motion picture studio for television. They bought it, and they let me write the script. And I've been writing ever since, which is 19 years. So much for educational requirements. <clears throat> uh, just in case you're thinking about changing, you know, fields. <laughs> So I rolled along. Hell, I had a great time. You know, suddenly I'm driving into motion picture studios. I got offices and nameplates and parking spots and all that good stuff. But one real thing that happened to me pointed up to me that something wrong was going on. I've been writing about 14 years, and a friend of mine came to visit me. And this guy, I had a lot of trouble dealing with this guy. I always had a lot of trouble being around him because he had an immense amount of self-esteem. And he thought he was okay, as is. And so if he wanted to know something, he would ask questions. Now that I can't tolerate. You know, to be out somewhere publicly with people you don't know and ask a question, let's not be ridiculous for Christ's sake. You know, I remember the first time I took him to a sushi bar, I thought I wanted to kill him. I mean, he walked the whole length of the thing. Well, what's that? Where does that come from? What's it taste like? Well, okay, what's this? You know, it's, I, you know, sit down, sit down, be good. Well, anyhow, one day he finagled himself a luncheon invitation to the studio and he came and he got on the lot, and it was impossible. Impossible, right? I mean, he was like a child. He's like, oh, God, this is great, man. Wow, look at that. Isn't that terrific? Oh, I know her. I've seen her. And what's her name, you know? I'm like, oh, Jesus, please, no, you know. I think I'll take him down to the stage. We're doing a special effects gag. I'll let him watch it. And we did this great gag where we drove a car through a lighting store, you know, with a store filled with lights. And it's a very intricate and very expensive gag to do because all the lights have to be set with explosives. And as the car proceeds through the store, the lights have to explode in rhythm, you know, with the car moving. It either works or it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, a lot of people get chewed out. If it works, you're all heroes, right? Well, it worked. The gag went perfect, right? I mean, it just went off wonderfully. And this guy who was with me walks up to the special effects guys and said, how did you do that? <laughs> and I was stunned to find the guy telling him, oh, well, what we did was this and this and this. And so I got to find out, see, because I never asked. <laughs> I've been watching that stuff for 14 years, but I never asked. See, because if I ask you a question, you're going to know the secret. You're going to know that something's wrong with me and that I'm not enough. So I'll look like I know. Or I won't go. See? I find, I find that one of the things that's interesting about low self-esteem is that, <clears throat> that I have to know who's there, what they're going to say, and what they're going to wear, or I don't go. Well, that is a little bit of a resistance to spontaneity. <laughs> and all the metaphysical teachers I've ever been with, and all the prophets I've ever talked to, and all the spirits that I've listened to talk through channels, and all the books that I have read, that have anything to do with living a spiritual path, why well, don't one thing is essential? The capacity for spontaneity. That it is critical. It is the stepping stone into spiritual life. You must be able... People say, gee, how do you tell God's will for you? I tell you, it's easy. Give, give it a lot of thought. Let me make your life really easy. Go out the door in the morning, start moving. When you hit a wall, turn left. <laughs> That's it. Doesn't require thinking, planning, or preparation. <laughs> Just start moving. You hit a wall, you turn left. They'll put you on the path. They'll put you on the path. But you must be willing to let go of all the belief systems and all the old ideas, even those that you think are good, and go down this unknown path. And if you have no self-esteem, you can't. Okay? You can't go. 
because you're afraid you'll look foolish. You don't know how to behave. I mean, in social situations all my life, if ever I was put into a room full of people that I didn't know, I have to go find a spot on the wall. Stand back against the wall and watch the people in the room and see how they behaved. See how they stood? Listen to their laugh. Oh, watch how they shook hands. And once I began to get down how they did it and believed that I could do it like they did it, I would move out into the room and begin to socialize. Stand like they stood. Oh, laugh like they laughed and shook hands like they shook hands. You know what the tragedy is? The tragedy is whoever I am, whatever I am, I left me on the wall. And I left me there because I'm absolutely, totally, thoroughly convinced that whoever it is, it's not enough to take out into this room. It's not okay just to walk into the room and be bombed. I've got to be whatever it is you are. I've got to behave like you behave. And then I'll be okay. He's behaving like a jerk. I try and take him to lunch. I figure I'll get him in the commissary. You know, it'll be better if I can get him in the commissary. I get him in the commissary. All the guys from MASH are having lunch, and he goes right over the edge, right? Oh, my favorite show. Wow. Oh, wow, wow. Everybody's looking around. Who's, you know. Three hours later, I got him off the studio lot. I went back, and I sat out of my office. And a little voice from down in the stomach says to me, are you aware that that man just had more fun with your career in three hours than you've had in 14 years? <laughs> and I didn't like that. And it didn't make me feel well. And I didn't understand why. I didn't understand what was wrong. But I went ahead anyway and just kept going. Looking good. Not going to strange places, meeting strange people. Not taking risks. When I was eight years sober, I met an incredibly remarkable woman. We dated for a couple of years, and after two years, we decided maybe we had both found a relationship that would work. We got married. We got married in January of 1973. In February of the same year, we found out she had cancer. In April of that year, she passed away. At that time, when she was presented with the prospects and the alternatives, she took me aside and she said to me, I do not want any treatment that's toxic. The treatment will kill me. I do not want it. Promise me that. Whether I'm conscious, unconscious, or whatever happens to me, they cannot do anything that's toxic. In those days, that eliminated radiation, eliminated chemotherapy, eliminated a lot of things. So we began to travel around this country and others seeking people that had non-toxic treatments for cancer. One of the things that everybody removed immediately, every one of them, and we were both big meat eaters and big cigarette smokers <clears throat> and coffee drinkers, the one thing they removed out of her life immediately, everyone without exception, whether it was immunology they were into, whether whatever the treatment was and whatever country it was in, was meat and cigarettes. They wanted red meat and cigarettes out of her life. So after she had passed away, about a month later, I was sitting in a restaurant one night and I was eating this steak. Somehow it wasn't necessary anymore. So I gave it up. My now I'm ten and ten and a half years sober. A few months later, I gave up coffee. Now, I'd like to tell you I gave up caffeine, but I just gave up coffee. I just kind of did a left turn. I had a wall and turned left. What happened is my throat closed. Coffee wouldn't go down anymore, so I switched to Diet Cola. I'm a compulsive, obsessive personality. I thought everybody drank 18 cans a day. <clears throat> I thought everybody woke up in the morning and had a can of Tab and a cigarette before they got out of bed, you know. And I found the taste of Tab and Rice Krispies, milk and sugar, perfectly compatible. I... <laughs> Couldn't understand it. No one else could, you know. <laughs> Remember, this is an AA spiritual giant going to institutions, carrying a message, sponsoring a lot of people, having his tab and his rice krispies. 
smoking a cigarette. Then one day I was researching a story on suicide, <clears throat> adolescence and suicide. I was down at suicide prevention in Los Angeles. This time I was about 15 years sober, 16 years sober. And um, I'm, we all sit in this little tiny boardroom around this table. And I, you know, whip out my Marlboros and my new super butane, spark-free, whatever, you know, light up. You're going to kill yourself, might as well do it with style. <laughs> Take a drag off the cigarette. Look around, there's not an ashtray in the room. Now, any serious smoker knows that if there isn't an ashtray in a room, the room's full of people, you're not on friendly turf. <laughs> so one guy says, oh, no, wait, wait, we'll get you an ashtray. That's okay, relax, no problem. He goes out in the outer offices and it sounds like he's remodeling, you know. I mean... <laughs> Opening doors, slamming doors, opening, clang, bang. And finally he comes back in with this platter big enough to put a fish on, you know. <laughs> Puts it down in front of me, and, and I sit there and try and be nonchalant, you know, with this <laughs> platter in front of me. Finally this guy says to me, the then head of suicide prevention says to me, we have an official opinion on cigarette smoking if you're interested. <laughs> and this little guy down here in my stomach says, what is it? He got to speak up before the mind had a chance to respond. And the guy said, well, it's very simple. He said, now that all the facts are in, it's no longer a theory, but it's proven the evidence says that cigarette smoking oven by itself will take your life. We view it to be covert suicide. It is a little tiny gun with a little tiny bullet. Huh. I was really glad I asked. <laughs> and I'd like to tell you that I walked out of there and never smoked another cigarette again as long as I live. Not true. I smoked for another six months. Worst. Six months of my life. Every time I lit a goddamn cigarette, I could hear the gun go off. It was like... <laughs> you know, and I'd look around the restaurant to see if anybody else heard it go off. You know, it's like... Are they aware that I'm blowing my brains out one millimeter at a time here? Or, you know... So six months later, I gave up the cigarettes. <clears throat> now, I discovered that American tobacco is cured in sugar. My body has now lost a major source of sugar because I was a heavy smoker. And my body wants sugar like the cookie monster on Sesame Street wants cookies, okay? And I begin to consume sugar. And I handle the sugar just like drug addiction, just like just like being loaded, right? I'd be sitting home. I had a condominium in Montecito. I'd be sitting home in a condominium, 10 minutes to 11 at night, on the couch, fireplace going, TV on, comfortable, saying to myself, there's no ice cream in the house, and it's not important. <laughs> I can have a simple glass of water and go to bed like the guy next door. This is just not an issue. Five minutes to 11, I'm out the door barefoot, running as fast as I can go. I'm in the car, 100 miles an hour down Santa Inez Road, broadside to a stop in front of 31 flavors, go through the door just as the guy's coming from the other side with the keys to lock up, buy my quart of pralines and cream. <clears throat> My jar of butterscotch topping and my jar of dry roasted cashews. Go home, get a bowl. I mean a bowl. I do not mean a chicken shit cereal bowl. I mean a mixing bowl. <laughs> and make a Sunday. I was in a marriage at the time. It wasn't going anywhere. And it was wonderful. It works like, you know, like barbiturates. It puts you right out. You have about three seconds that you're up and then it's... <laughs> Right to sleep. So it was working wonders. One small problem. 
I kept getting heavier. I couldn't understand it. I probably weighed 45 pounds more than I weigh now, maybe 50, and it all seemed to be right here for some reason. I don't remember how big the last pants were that I bought, but I do know one thing. Two days after I bought them or three, they, I couldn't get them fastened. And a little guy in the stomach said to me, okay, you can eat anything you want, as much as you want, whenever you want, but these are the biggest pants you're ever going to own. So if you want to walk around all winter with your Hawaiian shirts out, you know, cover up the fact you can't fasten your pants, you go right ahead. Well, somebody turned me on to red apples, red delicious apples. Whenever you want sugar, eat a red delicious apple. So I thought, well, I'll try that. So I started trying that. I moved back from Montecito to Southern California. Now that I'm, now I roll into my 17th birthday, I'm not eating red meats, I'm not eating sugar, and I'm not drinking coffee. I don't even think by now, I think I'd even gotten off the caffeine. I'm 17 years sober, and I'm sitting on a bed one more time, and I want to die one more time. And the only thing that's changed is the surroundings. Instead of a little funky, dumpy, single apartment on Sherman Way in the valley, I'm now living in a penthouse at the beach. Nothing's changed. Still want to die. Don't want to kill myself. I just want to stop breathing. Finally, somebody said to me, maybe you should see a therapist. Now, I had always been very open-minded to therapy. If you were someone I sponsored and you came to me and said, gee, I think I need a little additional help. I'm going to go see a therapist. I fired you immediately. If I as your sponsor and AA, the big book, weren't enough, I told you go find somebody that was. Get out of my life. Isn't it amazing how we resist the things we're afraid of that we need the most? So at this point in time in my life, 17 years sober, I couldn't see anywhere else to go, so I went. And having had a string of bad relationships, I figured women were my problem. If I had two hours, I'd talk about relationships, but we won't bother. (laughs) Let me sum up. My experience is very simply this. You can't give to somebody else what you can't give to yourself. So if you're about to embark on a new relationship, watch how the other person treats themselves, and you'll know exactly how they're going to treat you. That's not because they're good or bad or anything else. It's because they can't do it any different than that. They can't. It's absolutely impossible. So I went to see a woman. I sat down with this woman, and she said, well, you know, in this introductory meeting where we're going to get to know each other. Tell me a little bit about yourself, she says. Start with your childhood. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I said, well, when I was 15 years old, they threw me out of manual arts high school. I discovered the wonderful world of drugs and alcohol. I spent 11 years running the streets, you know, smuggling narcotics. When I was 17 years ago, I came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. I've been clean and sober ever since. She said, no, wait a minute. She said, I said, start with your childhood. You weren't born at 15 years of age. I looked at her and said, I don't remember. I can't remember anything. I said, I can remember two things from the time I was born until the time I was 15 years of age. And she got this great smile on her face. And I was being very self-seeking at the time. I assumed she was being self-seeking. And I interpreted the smile to be, oh, right? I have finally found the guy I'm going to write a paper on. It's going to get me, you know, the notoriety that I deserve. (laughs) Now I understand, six years later or whatever the hell it is, almost seven, that what the smile was all about is she was saying, without verbalizing it, stick with me. If you're willing to go through the pain, I'm going to introduce you to somebody that you never met. You. 
And I'm going to introduce you to the child that lives inside that adult. And I'm going to be present when this takes place. And that's what her smile is all about. Anyway, we begin the process, the therapy process. Let's go back and see what it is that Bob can't remember. While all this is going on, a couple of friends of mine come to me and say, well, look, as long as you're not eating meat and you're not smoking and you're not eating sugar, you should start running. Come on, let's go run. So I go run. I don't run well. <clears throat> so finally they say to me, look, what you got to do, man, is you got to get your feet going straight, see? And when you can get your feet going straight, you can go further, faster, with less effort. So what we want you to do is this. We want you to go down to Long Beach, California, and see the guy who's the best sports medicine podiatrist in the country, and he will get your feet going straight. Well, I live in Santa Monica. Long Beach is 35 miles away. I won't drive me that far to the doctor. Not me. I'll take you that far to the doctor. If you call me up and said to me, geez, I gotta go to this, my friend suggested that I go to this doctor, he's the best there is, I gotta, you know, can you pick me up? I don't have my car and take me. I say, sure, I'll be there in a minute. But I won't take me. Okay? I will not take me. A lot of people will interpret that as spiritual. Isn't that wonderful? He'll drive the other guy further than he'll drive himself. Don't believe that for a minute. Not for a minute. And you know, I am also, I heard you got, you heard, you heard a little bit of the ACA last night. I'm an adult child of alcoholics, and I believe if you don't, if you, if you duck that one in recovery, you're gonna have 164,000 dry drunks. That they are no more than that behavior manifesting itself in your sobriety. And it's something you might want to think about as physicians too, you know, if you're dealing with the adult child of alcoholics and you're involving them in treatment, which they must participate, don't be surprised if they don't. Don't be surprised if they don't. Because they may not be able to. They just may not be able to. So I go to a podiatrist who's in Century City. who's five minutes away. who probably just graduated anyway. He had no idea what the hell he was doing. He built orthotics for me that were incorrect. I went out and ran three miles and wound up bent over like this, unable to straighten up. <clears throat> My friends all come to me and say, you got to go to Pasadena. In Pasadena are the best sports medicine chiropractors in the world. They work with the Olympic team. They will have you upright in a week. Pasadena is just as far as Long Beach. I can't take me to Pasadena. So I go to a chiropractor in a marina who's 75 pounds overweight, smokes, and doesn't know what running means unless there's a fire, right? <laughs> By the time he's done with me, I'm like this. Can't straighten up at all. So that finally, out of absolute, total, complete desperation, I drive me to Pasadena, like this. <laughs> I get there. Guy was right. A week later, I'm upright. I feel great. Now, the doctors in Pasadena say to me, you got to go see the guy in Long Beach. So I get in the car, I drive to Long Beach, and I find I'm down there in Long Beach, and I'm in his office, and I'm in that stupid chair where you got your feet straight out in front of you. And in walks the nicest, gentlest, kindest human being I have ever met in my life. He says, hi, how are you? I say, fine, how are you? Fine, I'm always fine. <laughs> he walks up, he picks my right foot up, and he turns it about 17 different ways, and he looks at it and he says, what happened to your right foot when you were a kid? I don't know why. He said, well, it's practically a club foot. It lays on its side. I said, I don't know, maybe I was born that way. He says, no, this is not a birth. This is a structural change in the foot after you were born. 
suddenly I felt real sick at my stomach. And I didn't understand why. But I was really upset. This is one of the reasons my mind doesn't like feelings. You see, because feelings can't be controlled. They just sort of show up at inopportune times. Like crying during a cereal commercial. <laughs> In the midst of friends, you know. It's whatever it is. It's like they don't seem to respect your need to look good, you know. They just kind of show up. You can be walking through your house and for no reason at all suddenly feel good. You know? My mind always says to me immediately, why are you happy? <laughs> oh, gee, I don't know. I just feel good. Well, if you were in touch with the reality of your life, you wouldn't be. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. So I got this feeling, this, 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 this ease, and I drive home to my, to my apartment in Santa Monica, and I'm, and I'm pacing, and I'm uncomfortable, and I don't know what the hell to do, and the phone rings, and on the other end of the phone is my mother. I love God's timing. It's impeccable. She, too, has just come from her podiatrist and is filled with complaints because he didn't cut her toenails straight. So finally I said, look, as long as we're on the subject of feet, what happened to mine? Now, my mother is the co-alcoholic. My father was the alcoholic. And if you decide to ever begin this adventure, let me tell you, going back talking to the co-alcoholic is a real goddamn experience because they don't even know you were there. You know, they don't even know the drunk was there. They don't know anybody was there. You know, they just kind of go to the kitchen, you know. My mother spent her life in the kitchen. She'd hit the fanboy. She just went to the kitchen. You know, it's like the one place you couldn't touch her. You know, if I had knees as a little child, I'd go running to grab her leg and it would disappear. You know, it would be in the kitchen, the place that she couldn't be touched, right? But she said, why, nothing. Why? And I, and I pushed her. You know, what happened? She said, well, when you were a small child, you had very high arches. And it required special shoes for the high arches. And they were extremely expensive shoes. In the next three minutes in this conversation, she must have repeated five more times how expensive these shoes were for these high arches. And I hung up the phone after the conversation with her, and I felt worse than I had felt in my entire life and didn't know why. I wanted to kill somebody and didn't know who. I was so sick at my stomach, I wanted to throw up and didn't know why. And I was filled with, I was like, and I'm a mover, I get going, I can't, you know, I couldn't sit down, I paced all night long, couldn't sleep, nothing. I was just over the edge, over the edge. Next day I went in to see my therapist, walked into the office, she said, how are you? And I went, ah! I didn't no longer say fine, at least to her, anyway. I told her what the problem was, and she said, well, why don't we go back and see what we can find? And we went back, and what we found was me, about two and a half years old, standing in a hallway in an apartment building in Denver, Colorado. And I had tears streaming down my face. And I was pointing at my right foot. My mother was there with me, and I was telling my mother that the shoe on my right foot was so small, it hurt my foot so bad that I was crying. And my mother said to me, Shh, not too loud. Your father will hear, and he'll be angry. So I went the next day to see this guy in Long Beach again, and I drove down and had five minutes of his time, and I walked in, I sat down with him, I said, could wearing a shoe designed for a high arch that was too small have turned that foot over? He said, absolutely, that's probably what did it. And I went home and I cried and I beat the shit out of the couch and I went right over the edge because I finally understood for the first time in my life ever why wherever I have been, whoever I've been with, I've always felt like there's something wrong with me and that I'm not enough. 
Because if you can't buy shoes for me that fit, I can't be worth very much. And that's how I treated myself my whole life. And I learned a couple of other things in that household. I learned how not to feel or express or acknowledge feelings. I don't know about your different areas in AA, but out here on the West Coast in AA, there's a whole movement on of women who are angry about being in relationships with men who are not in touch with their feelings. They've even started meetings for women who are in relationships with men who aren't in touch with their feelings. <laughs> Let me tell you why we're not. I remember three years of age, man, taking the header off the tricycle into the driveway and getting all the skin torn off of my knee and for the first time in my life seeing my blood coming out of my body and go running into the house to my dad sitting in the chair sucking on a can of beer, tears streaming down my face. <laughs> First words out of his mouth are, stop crying. I can't stop you. If you don't stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. I can't stop that. I learned to not cry. I didn't give birth to an idiot. I worked that one out quick. You know? That was the last time I ever shed tears. 17 years of age, I laid in Georgia Street Emergency Hospital in downtown Los Angeles with police bullets in me, and I looked at the surgeon who was about to remove the bullets, and I told him to take his anesthesia and stick it in his ass. My father would have been proud. Unfortunately, I fainted when he was a quarter of an inch into my leg, but what the hell, I tried, you know. <laughs> I look good for a minute anyway, you know. <laughs> Another thing you learn how not to do in an alcoholic household is be happy. There's constant tension, stress, and shadows. And you learn not to laugh, and children are born to laugh. Do you ever watch two children get together and one starts giggling? I mean, they go right over. It's like they can't stop. And you cannot giggle in a household with an alcoholic because you're dealing with a paranoid, and all paranoids know who you're laughing at. <laughs> They will stop you immediately. Immediately. So this woman and I can continue this therapy process and I continue to go on in a life of sobriety and what the hell have we got now? Well, I'm... I'll be 24 years sober in a couple of weeks, three weeks. I'm 50 years of age. I'm in great health. I'm in the top 1% of the nation for men my age. You know, I'm a vegetarian. I eat no meat of any kind, fish, chicken, or anything else. Uh... I bicycle, I swim a little, I hate swimming, but I gotta learn to do more if I'm ever gonna do a triathlon. God, I hate swimming. <laughs> I run not as much as I used to. I've had a knee surgery. I'm not, we won't discuss the competency of the guy that did the knee surgery. <laughs> but more importantly than anything else is I discovered the child that lives inside of me. The little tiny guy with curly hairs and big blue eyes and a silly expression and a sailor suit. I have his picture on my TV at home. It's me. And he's adorable. And one of the things I found out about this kid is he loves teddy bears. He loves teddy bears. They're his favorite thing in the whole world. I own 70 teddy bears. <laughs> it's about time he got spoiled. And bears go with me wherever I go. There's one in the room right now looking at the sunset and watching television. Sitting in the chair, he's got a little red and white shirt on with a few pins on it. Now that we've moved to New Mexico, he's got a headband on and a hat that says New Mexico. I take him out sometimes and put him next to me on airplanes. You'd be amazed how people react to a large adult male with a bear in the seat next to him. <laughs> they know you've just been released and are going home for a visit. And they... 
and they're really quiet. You know, everybody around you is kind of, they, they kind of really behave themselves on the flight, you know? You have no problems with your fellow passengers when you travel with teddy bears. I discovered that this child is a beautiful child, and a gentle child, and a delicate child, and a curious child. And I let him be curious. He says, employees only at the airport, and he wants to look behind the door, we look behind the door. If the goddamn alarm goes off, I apologize, you know. <laughs> Nobody gets hurt. Kid gets to take a look. But now all the things he never got to do when he was a child. I get to raise this child now. See? I have to parent this child. I'm convinced if I don't parent this child in recovery, recovery will be in a giant mess. See? You know what I can't tolerate is I can't tolerate walking in an A class. Well, let's, let's approach this another way. What's going to change AA is the kids. Kids are going to change it. And you guys, far be it for me, to tell you what the hell to do. <laughs> but, supposedly, we're victims of a disease that's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. I don't see us doing a lot about the physical aspects of this disease. I don't see it being treated in treatment facilities. I don't see it being treated in AA. I don't see it being treated anywhere. Nowhere. I see people coming in, brand new newcomers, with more consciousness about their physical body and physical health than people 20 years sober. We're getting kids in here today that are interesting. We've got a couple of kids in not long ago, in Southern California. They had been everywhere on the spiritual path. They've been vegetarian since they were born, right? And they had been everywhere. They had been to India. They had spent years in India. They had lived in caves with yogis. They had walked the rivers. They had been in the Himalayas. They had been with the Tibetan monks. They had been all over the goddamn world. They had walked barefoot in the snow with Edgar Casey's people in Virginia Beach. They had been everywhere, everywhere, seeking and looking. And the only thing, the only thing that was screwing up their 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 consuming of the information they're getting was the heroin they were using. <laughs> They came into Alcoholics Anonymous and we gave him a book. We said, here, take this book. And he's the only guy I ever saw in my life open this book that loved it. Loved it. They said, wow, this is great. This is tremendous. These principles say the Essenes were teaching 2,000 years before Jesus ever put on earth. This is good stuff. This is great. This will free me from my addiction. And they went after the steps and after this program, man, like, you know, a fish goes after water. When I was out in North Hollywood, and one of these young guys walked into North Hollywood Clubhouse, he had about five months, six months on a program, sitting there in a chair with one of the staunch old-timers, 30-some years sober, with his pile of cookies in front of him, his cup of coffee, sucking on his goddamn cigarettes, and this kid walked in, and he looked at him, and looks around, and he knew he was 30-some years sober, he said to him, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> the kid went, and he says, man, you've been given another chance at life here. God has given you another chance at life. He has raised you from a disease that is terminal that will kill you and put you on a path of life. And you're sitting here in this goddamn chair killing yourself. What are you doing? You know what the answer was? When you're sober as long as I am, you'll understand. <laughs> well, I sure hope not. You know, I sure hope not. Because I believe it's all part of the package of finding out who you are and beginning to take care of yourself. I like myself today. I never did before. I'll see an image of myself as I walk past a plate glass window somewhere and I'll smile. I'll smile. There's a nice guy here. It's a tremendous guy. I just upheaved my whole life and moved to New Mexico from California because I'm the little guy in the stomach that's is where we're going. I said, okay. Makes absolutely no sense at all. It made no sense. To move away from the area in which all my work is at this time and when things are not financially good made no sense at all. Dumbest thing I could do. Ask my mind. It'll tell you. <laughs> In the three weeks I've been in the state of New Mexico, I've written more than I had the whole previous year. 
whole previous year, yet intellectually unacceptable for me to make the move that the little guy said I should make. Oh, yes, you have an adolescent inside of you, too. The guys know about the adolescent particularly. He's the one giving you a whiplash when you drive down the street. <laughs> He's the one that wants to cruise the high school, but you're afraid you'll get caught. You know. <laughs> He's the one that can fall in love with a calf, just the leg going by. Oh, yeah, God, wow, oh, yeah, that's her, I know, you know. He's the one that can't stand it when I put a big bear in the seat next to me on an airplane, because he wants to lay the stewardess, you know, he doesn't. He don't want, he's got to look good at all costs. I take a bear out and put it on the seat. He goes nuts. No, no, don't put the bear in the seat. God, no. You know, put the goddamn bear in the baggage compartment where he belongs. Get him out of the seat. She'll never talk to us, you know. <laughs> I remember a few years ago, I bought him a Corvette. He wanted a Corvette. I bought him a Corvette. I went from safe driver's insurance to assigned risk in a year. <laughs> so I took his Corvette away and sold it. I was a good parent. <laughs> um, let me sum all this up. I am an absolute staunch believer in ACA and what it's trying to do. I, based on my own first-hand experience, that's all I got, believe that it is all those issues of being raised. In a, and it's just a double-edged sword, guys, because we're all parents. Every time I look at what they did to me, i got to look at what I did to mine. A woman I know in AA probably summed it up better than anybody. She called her daughter. She was four years sober, and her daughter was having her first birthday in AA. She called her daughter on her birthday, and she, and she said, look, I don't have any money to buy you a present for your first AA birthday. She said, so here's what I want to give you for a present. She said, I want you to know that I am responsible for most of the problems that you have in life today. I want you to understand fully that I, your mother, am responsible for the fact you can't hold a job. I'm responsible for the fact you can't have a meaningful relationship with another human being. I'm responsible for the fact that you're filled with unknown fears and you don't know what the hell to do about them. I'm responsible for most of the problems you have today. It is me that's responsible, not you. She said, but on this, your first birthday, please understand, you are responsible for the solution. I did it, but I can't fix it. God, I can live with that. I can handle that. That's great. Because everybody's always walking around saying, hey, forgive them. You know? They did the best job they could with the tools they had. I forgive my parents, but their behavior won't change. <laughs> It'll make you a better parent. It'll make you a better parent. There's a guy you may want to get sometime to talk at one of these outfits called John Bradshaw. If you haven't had him, you might want to dig him out of Texas. Just tell him to talk about shame. About being raised in shame. And hear the message about how it changes your life and makes you a prisoner. What's AA all about to me? Well... <clears throat> I've got a friend on the program who's 24 years sober also. He's 61 years of age. Five years ago, they told him, they said to him, they said, well, man, you got cancer. That's it. Goodbye. Forget it. It's over. Fred already, you know, was into a few things like running and a little bit of swimming, and he was just starting to ride a bicycle. And he said, no, nah, that ain't it. I ain't done. It isn't over. He followed whatever prescribed treatment he was given, and he cleaned up the rest of his life entirely. He cleaned up what he ate. Got serious about his exercise, got serious about his swimming, got serious about his running. He got serious about all of it. November last year, 61 years of age, Fred was on the Big Island in Hawaii for a little event called the Iron Man. 23 and a half years sober, 61 years of age, cancer remission. Fred finished it in 15 and a half hours. 
the two-and-a-half-mile ocean swim, 112-mile bicycle ride, and the 26-mile run. You want to ask me about recovery, sobriety, and AA? That's the best example of it I know. God bless you. Thank you.